Psychologists explain what it means when someone copies you. They say that imitation is the best form of flattery, but at some point it might all become a bit too much. How much copying is acceptable? What happens when copying no longer seems like a compliment, but like thievery? Better yet, regardless of intention, why does anyone want to copy those around them anyway? What's the appeal in that? Science has the answer. Positive copying and why it happens. Positive copying is fairly commonplace, and it can be quite flattering. In these cases, you won't feel harmed or threatened by this copying, though it may get a bit awkward every now and then. A positive copycat may ask you where you got an outfit they love and then buy it, but just for that one outfit. Look up to your work ethic and attempt to take pointers from you. Mirror your body language in an effort to be friendly or get to know you. Attempt to get on your good side by doing things similar to you. Openly say they are copying a minor aspect about you. Buy a product that you have recommended or spoken highly of. They're all nice enough with good intentions. But what exactly motivates a person to copy you, even in this nice way? Here are some ideas. Culture. Minority cultures often attempt to imitate certain qualities of majority cultures in order to be accepted into society. They may also simply follow the old saying, when in Rome, and do so in order to be polite. This doesn't mean they aren't proud of their culture. They have simply recognized the privilege that comes with being a part of the majority in certain situations. It's not a personal attack on you or a direct act of copying you specifically. It's a way to get out of the lower status the world may have put on them or just a way to be nice. Personality type. Did you know that extroverts are more likely to engage in positive copying than introverts? This is because they are often more sociable and recognize that imitating or mirroring you can help you feel more comfortable around them. So if the person imitating you right now is very extroverted, Chances are that they're just trying to be your friend. Don't be so hard on them. They're trying to make you feel more comfortable. Education. Studies indicate that those of lower education levels tend to copy those with higher education levels. It is hypothesized that this happens because they are trying to learn from those with more knowledge and experience than them. Copying someone with more knowledge can also help them to get further in the workplace. They may pick up some valuable skills they had no idea were crucial in your field of work. Mirroring. Mirroring body language is very common when you're interacting with others. This means they might yawn shortly after you, or scratch their head right after you do, or imitate your posture when they talk to you.
There are a few reasons mirroring may occur. This person may be attracted to you or may look up to you, causing them to subconsciously watch you too much, and be influenced by what you do. They may also be thoroughly listening to you, and you have compelled them into doing this without thinking. Mirroring can also happen because they are trying to gain your favor or influence you. They may be aware of the effect that mirroring can have on others. It can make you like them more or listen to them more. They may also mirror you in order to help you feel heard when you are talking about something difficult or emotional. Negative copying and why it happens. Unfortunately, copying can also be a very negative trait. While imitation imbalance is a form of flattery, and mirroring can be a sign of interest, engagement, or even a desire to connect with you, many people take it too far and become complete copycats. These negative forms of copying include studying you in order to take note of all your mannerisms. Copying your accent or vocabulary. Adopting the same thoughtless habits, like how you tap your feet, play with your hair, or fiddle with your pen. Flirting with your romantic partners. Mimicking your sense of style. Getting the same haircut as you. Buying the same products as you. Trying to break into your friend group or befriend your friends. Claiming credit for or stealing your ideas. Not only is this type of copying very creepy, but it's also usually insulting and can rob you of any feeling of individuality that you have. It can get in the way of your daily life, and it can cause a lot of unnecessary conflict. But why would someone want to do something like this? According to psychology, there are a few reasons. A lack of sense of self. Someone who has a strong sense of individuality feels no need to attempt to imitate anyone else. But someone who doesn't know why they may attempt to latch on to the traits of those around them to make them feel more confident. When you don't know who you are, it's easy to pick and choose traits from those around you. This person may consider you an ideal candidate for the person they want to be, causing them to focus on absorbing all of your traits. Envy. If a person envies your life or your success, they may believe that they have to do everything that they possibly can to achieve some semblance of what you have. They may believe that the secret to your success lies in how you hold yourself, how you dress, how you speak, or the hobbies you enjoy, so they copy those aspects. Of course, this won't work. They cannot copy your life's achievements by doing exactly what you do. Your situation is unique to theirs, and this is more likely harming rather than helping them. But they don't know that, so they keep on hoping. Insecurity and poor self-esteem. Someone who is confident and secure in themselves would never feel the need to copy others. 
But a lack of self-esteem can ultimately cause someone to try and elevate themselves by copying those they admire. Mental health issues can also lead to chronic copycat behavior and the lack of positive thinking exhibited by those with low self-esteem often leads to depression. They think so little of themselves and they want to be anyone else at all. So they pick you out of all their choices. It's flattering, but troubling. Obsession. Stalkers aren't just people who are romantically or sexually interested in you. They can be anyone who develops an obsession over you. If you have any reason to believe that someone is unhealthily and dangerously obsessed with you, speak to law enforcement, to your lawyer, or to both. Dealing with unwanted copycats. Announce big ideas to everyone. Worried that a copycat will try and take credit for a new venture of yours? Keep it quiet until you're ready to be in work on it. Then announce it hugely to everyone you know. This means that the copycat will no longer be easily able to imitate your actions, as everyone knows you thought of it first. Talk to the copycat. It's an awkward conversation to have, but if you think this copycat isn't very malicious, sit down and talk to them directly. Tell them that you've noticed some similarities between you and ask them if everything is alright, or if this was their intention. Sure, it's uncomfortable, but once a copycat knows that you are onto them, they'll be less inclined to continue their behavior. Plus, in some cases, they may not have even noticed they were doing it. Compliment unique things about the copycat. A copycat who is insecure believes they must copy others to be worthy of good things. So, talk to your copycat and compliment something unique about them. This can help them help give them the ego boost they need to work on being their own person instead of copying you. Tell them you like their personal sense of style. Tell them you're impressed with one of their personality traits. Express how you look up to them for certain aspects of your life. The possibilities are endless. The values Americans live by. Most Americans would have a difficult time telling you specifically what the values are that Americans live by. They have never given the matter much thought. Even if Americans had considered this question, they would probably in the end decide not to answer in terms of a definitive list of values. The reason for this decision is itself one very American value, their belief that every individual is so unique that the same list of values could never be applied to all, or even most, of their fellow citizens. Although Americans may think of themselves as being more varied and unpredictable than they actually are, it is significant that they think they are. Americans tend to think that they have been only slightly influenced by family, church, or schools.
In the end, each believes, I personally chose which values I want to live my own life by. Despite this self-evaluation, a foreign anthropologist could observe Americans and produce a list of common values that would fit, fit most Americans. The list of typically American values would stand in sharp contrast to the values commonly held by the people of many other countries. We can say that if the foreign visitor really understood how deeply ingrained these 13 values are in Americans, he or she would then be able to understand 95% of American actions, action that might otherwise appear strange or unbelievable when evaluated from the perspective of the foreigner's own society and its values. The different behaviors of a people or culture make sense only when seen through the basic beliefs, assumptions, and values of that particular group. When you encounter an action or hear a statement in the United States that surprises you, try to see it as an expression of one or more of the values listed here. For example, when you ask Americans for directions to get to a particular address in their own city, they may explain in great detail how you can get there on your own, but may never even consider walking two city blocks with you to lead you to the place. Some foreign visitors have interpreted this sort of action as showing Americans unfriendliness. We would suggest instead that the self-help concept, value number six on our list, is so strong in Americans that they firmly believe no adult would ever want, even temporarily, to be dependent on another. Also, their future orientation, value eight, makes Americans think it is better to prepare you to find other addresses on your own in the future. Before proceeding to the list itself, we should also point out that Americans see all of these values as very positive ones. They are not aware, for example, that the people in many third world countries view change, value two, as negative or threatening. In fact, all 13 of these American values are judged by many of the world's citizens as negative and undesirable. Therefore, it is not enough simply to familiarize yourself with these values. You must also, so far as possible, consider them without the negative or derogatory connotation that they might have for you, based on your own experience and cultural identity. It is important to state emphatically that our purpose in providing you with this list of the most important American values is not to convert you, the foreign visitor, to our values. We couldn't achieve that goal even if we wanted to, and we don't want to. We simply want to help you understand the Americans with whom you will be relating, from their own value system rather than from yours. Number one, personal control over the environment. Americans no longer believe in the power of fate, and they have come to look at people who do 
as being backward, primitive, or hopelessly naive. To be called fatalistic is one of the worst criticisms one can receive in the American context. To an American, it means one is superstitious and lazy, unwilling to take any initiative in bringing about improvement. In the United States, people consider it normal and right that man should control nature rather than the other way around. More specifically, people believe every single individual should have control over whatever in the environment might potentially affect him or her. The problems of one's life are not seen as having resulted from bad luck as much as having come from one's laziness in pursuing a better life. Furthermore, it is considered normal that anyone should look out for his or her own self-interests first and foremost. Most Americans find it impossible to accept that there are some things that lie beyond the power of humans to achieve. And Americans have literally gone to the moon because they refuse to accept earthly limitations. Americans seem to be challenged, even compelled, to do, by one means or another, and often at great cost, what seven-eighths of the world is certain cannot be done. Number two, change. In the American mind, change is seen as an indisputably good condition. Change is strongly linked to development, improvement, progress, and growth. Many older, more traditional cultures consider change as a disruptive, destructive force, to be avoided if at all possible. Instead of change, such societies value stability, continuity, tradition, and a rich and ancient heritage, none of which are valued very much in the United States. These first two values, the belief that we can do anything and the belief that any change is good, together with an American belief in the virtue of hard work and the belief that every individual has a responsibility to do the best he or she can do, have helped Americans achieve some great accomplishments. So whether these beliefs are true is really irrelevant. What is important is that Americans have considered them to be true and have acted as if they were, thus in fact, causing them to happen. Number three, time and its control. Time is, for the average American, of utmost importance. To the foreign visitor, Americans seem to be more concerned with getting things accomplished on time, according to a predetermined schedule than they are with developing deep interpersonal relations. Schedules for the American are meant to be planned and then followed in the smallest detail. It may seem to you that most Americans are completely controlled by the little machines they wear on their wrists, cutting their discussions off abruptly to make it to their next appointment on time. Americans' language is filled with references to time, giving a clear indication of how much it is valued. 
Time is something to be on, to be kept, filled, saved, used, spent, wasted, lost, gained, planned, given, made the most of, even killed. The international visitor soon learns that it is considered very rude to be late, even by ten minutes, for an appointment in the United States. Whenever it is absolutely impossible to be on time, you should phone ahead and tell the person you have been unavoidably detained and will be late. Time is so valued in America because by considering time to be important, one can clearly accomplish more than if one wastes time and does not keep busy. This philosophy has proven its worth. It has enabled Americans to be extremely productive, and productivity itself is highly valued in the United States. Many American proverbs stress the value in guarding our time using it wisely, setting and working toward specific goals, and even expending our time and energy today so that the fruits of our labor may be enjoyed at a later time. This latter concept is called delayed gratification. Number four, equality egalitarianism. Equality is, for Americans, one of their most cherished values. This concept is so important for Americans that they have been, they have even given it a religious basis. They say all people have been created equal. Most Americans believe that God views all humans alike without regard to intelligence, physical condition, or economic status. In secular terms, this belief is translated into the assertion that all people have an equal opportunity to succeed in life. Americans differ in opinion about how to make this ideal into a reality. Yet virtually all agree that equality is an important civic and social goal. The equality concept often makes Americans seem strange to foreign visitors. Seven-eighths of the world feels quite differently. To them, rank and status and authority are seen as much more desirable considerations, even if they personally happen to find themselves near the bottom of the social order. Class and authority seem to give people in those other societies a sense of security and certainty. People outside the United States consider it reassuring to know from birth who they are and where they fit into the complex system called society. Many highly placed foreign visitors to the United States are insulted by the way they are treated by service personnel, such as waiters in restaurants, clerks in stores, taxi drivers. Americans have an aversion to treating people of high position in a deferential manner, and conversely often treat lower-class people as if they were very important. Newcomers to the United States should realize that no insult or personal indignity 
is intended by this lack of deference to rank or position in society. A foreigner should be prepared to be considered just like anybody else while in the country. Individual and Privacy The individualism that has been developed in the Western world since the Renaissance, beginning in the late 15th century, has taken its most exaggerated form in the 20th century United States. Here, in each individual is seen as completely and marvelously unique, that is, totally different from all other individuals, and therefore particularly precious and wonderful. Americans think they are more individualist in their thoughts and actions than, in fact, they are. They resist being thought of as representatives of a homogenous group, whatever the group. They may and do join groups, in fact, many groups, but somehow believe they're just a little different, just a little unique, just a little special, from other members of the same group. And they tend to leave groups as easily as they enter them. Privacy, the ultimate result of individualism, is perhaps even more difficult for the foreigner to comprehend. The word privacy does not even exist in many languages. If it does, it is likely to have a strongly negative connotation, suggesting loneliness or isolation from the group. In the United States, privacy is not only seen as a very positive condition, but it is also viewed as a requirement that all humans would find equally necessary, desirable, and satisfying. It is not uncommon for Americans to say and believe such statements as, if I don't have at least half an hour a day to myself, I will go stark raving mad. Individualism as it exists in the United States does mean that you will find a much greater variety of opinions, along with the absolute freedom to express them, anywhere and any time, here. Yet, in spite of this wide range of personal opinion, almost all Americans will ultimately vote for one of the two major political parties. This is what was meant by the statement made earlier, that Americans take pride in crediting themselves with claiming more individualism than, in fact, they really have. 6. Self-help control In the United States, a person can take credit only for what he or she has accomplished by he, himself or herself. Americans get no credit whatsoever for having been born into a rich family. Americans pride themselves in having been born poor and, through their own sacrifice and hard work, having climbed the difficult ladder of success to whatever level they have achieved, all by themselves. The American social system has, of course, made it possible for Americans to move relatively easily up the social ladder. Take a look in an English-language dictionary at the composite words that have a self as a prefix. In the average desk dictionary, there will be more than 100 such words. Words like self-confidence, self-conscious, self-control, 
self-criticism, etc. The equivalent of these words cannot be found in most other languages. The list is perhaps the best indication of how seriously Americans take doing things for oneself. The self-made man or woman is still very much the ideal in 20th century America. 7. Competition and Free Enterprise Americans believe that competition brings out the best in any individual. They assert that it challenges or forces each person to produce the very best that is humanly possible. Consequently, the foreign visitor will see competition being fostered in the American home and classroom, even at the youngest age level. You may find the competitive value disagreeable, especially if you come from a society that promotes cooperation rather than competition. But many U.S. Peace Corps volunteers teaching in third world countries found the lack of competitiveness in a classroom situation equally distressing. They soon learned that what they thought to be one of the universal human characteristics represented only a peculiarly American or Western value. Americans valuing competition have devised an economic system to go with it, free enterprise. Americans feel strongly that a highly competitive economy will bring out the best in its people, and ultimately that the society that fosters competition will progress most rapidly. If you look for it, you will see evidence in all areas, even in fields as diverse as medicine, the arts, education, and sports, that free enterprise is the most preferred approach in America. 8. Future Orientation Valuing the future and the improvements Americans are sure the future will bring means that they devalue that past and are, to a large extent, unconscious of the present. Even a happy present goes largely unnoticed, because happy as it may be, Americans have traditionally been hopeful that the future would bring even greater happiness. Almost all energy is directed towards realizing that better future. At best, the present condition is seen as preparatory to a latter and greater event, which will eventually culminate in something even more worthwhile. Since Americans have been taught in value one to believe that man and not fate can and should be the one who controls the environment, this has made them very good at planning and ex- executing short-term projects. This ability in turn has caused Americans to be invited to all corners of the earth to plan and achieve the miracles that their goal setting can produce. If you come from a culture such as those in the traditional Muslim world, we're talking about or actively planning the future is felt to be a futile, even sinful activity, 
you will not have only philosophical problems with this very American characteristic, but religious objections as well. Yet, it is something you will have to learn to live with. For all around you, Americans will be looking toward the future and what it will bring. 9. Action Work Orientation Don't just stand there, goes a typical bit of American advice. Do something. This expression is normally used in a crisis situation. Yet, in a sense, it describes most Americans' entire waking life, where action, any action, is seen to be superior to inaction. Americans routinely plan and schedule an extremely active day. Any relaxation must be limited in time, pre-planned, and aimed at recreating their ability to work harder and more productively once the recreation is over. Americans believe leisure activities should assume a relatively small portion of one's total life. People think that it is sinful to waste one's time, to sit around doing nothing, or just to daydream. Such a no-nonsense attitude towards life has created many people who have come to be known as workaholics, or people who are addicted to their work who constantly think about their jobs and who are frustrated if they are kept away from them, even during their evening hours and weekends. The workaholic syndrome, in turn, causes Americans to identify themselves wholly with their professions. The first question one American will ask another American when meeting for the first time is related to his or her work. Where do you work? Or, what company are you with? And when such a person finally goes on vacation, even the vacation will be carefully planned, busy and active. America may be one of the few countries in the world where it seems reasonable to speak about the dignity of human labor, meaning by that hard physical labor. In America, even corporation presidents will engage in physical labor from time to time and gain, rather than lose, respect from others for such an action. 10. Informality If you come from a more formal society, you will likely find Americans to be extremely informal and will probably feel that they are even disrespectful of those in authority. Americans are one of the most informal and casual people in the world, even when compared to their near relative, the Western European. As one example of this informality, American bosses often urge their employees to call them by their first names and even feel uncomfortable if they are called by the title Mr. or Mrs. Dress is another area where American informality will be most noticeable, perhaps even shocking. One can go to a symphony performance, for example, in any large American city nowadays, and find some people in the audience dressed in blue jeans 
and tieless, short-sleeved shirts. Informality is also apparent in Americans' greetings. The more formal how are you has largely been replaced with an informal hi. This is as likely to be used to one's superior as one's best friend. If you are a highly placed official in your own country, you will probably at first find such informality to be very unsettling. Americans, on the other hand, would consider such informality as a compliment. Certainly, it is not intended as an insult and should not be taken as such. 11. Directness, Openness, and Honesty Many other countries have developed subtle, sometimes highly ritualistic, ways of informing other people of unpleasant information. Americans, however, have always preferred the first approach. They are likely to be completely honest in delivering their negative evaluations. If you come from a society that uses the indirect manner of conveying bad news or uncomplimentary evaluations, you will be shocked at Americans' bluntness. If you come from a country where saving face is important, be assured that Americans are not trying to make you lose face with their directness. It is important to realize that an American would not, in such a case, lose face. The burden of adjustment in all cases while you are in this country will be on you. There is no way to soften the blow of such directness and openness if you are not used to it, except to tell you that the rules have changed while you are here. Indeed, Americans are trying to urge their fellow countrymen to become even more open and direct. The large number of assertiveness training courses that appeared in the United States in the late 1970s reflects such a commitment. Americans consider anything other than the most direct and open approach to be dishonest and insincere, and will quickly lose confidence in and distrust anyone who hints at what is intended, rather than saying it outright. Anyone who, in the United States, chooses to use an intermediary to deliver that message will also be considered manipulative and untrustworthy. 12. Practicality and Efficiency Americans have a reputation of being an extremely realistic, practical, and efficient people. The practical consideration is likely to be given highest priority in making any important decision in the United States. Americans pride themselves in not being very philosophically or theoretically oriented. If Americans would even admit to having a philosophy, it would probably be that of pragmatism. Will it make any money? Will it pay its own way? What can I gain from this activity? These are the kinds of questions that Americans are likely to ask in their practical pursuit, not such questions as, 
Is it aesthetically pleasing? Will it be enjoyable? Or will it advance the cause of knowledge? This practical and pragmatic orientation has caused Americans to contribute more inventions to the world than any other country in human history, except China. The love of practicality has also caused Americans to view some professions more favorably than others. Management and economics, for example, are much more popular in the United States than philosophy or anthropology. Law and medicine more valued than the arts. Another way in which this favoring of the practical makes itself felt in the United States is a belittling of emotional and subjective evaluations in honor of, in favor of rational and objective assessments. Americans try to avoid being too sentimental in making their decisions. They judge every situation on its merits. The popular American trial and error approach to problem solving also reflects the practical. The approach suggests listing several possible solutions to any given problem, then trying them out, one by one, to see which is most effective. 13. Materialism, Acquisitiveness Foreigners generally consider Americans much more materialistic than Americans are likely to consider themselves. Americans would like to think that their material objects are just the natural benefits that always result from hard work and serious intent. A reward, they think, that all people could enjoy were they as industrious and hard-working as Americans. But by any standard, Americans are materialistic. This means that they value and collect more material objects than most people would ever dream of owning. It also means they give higher priority to obtaining, maintaining, and protecting their material objects than they do in developing and enjoying interpersonal relationships. The modern American typically owns one or more color television sets, an electric hairdryer, an electric calculator, a tape recorder and record player, a clothes washer and dryer, a vacuum cleaner, a powered lawn mower, a refrigerator, stove, and dishwasher, one or more automobiles, and a telephone. Many also own a personal computer. Since Americans value newness and innovation, they sell or throw away their possessions frequently and replace them with newer ones. A car may be kept for only two or three years, a house for five or six, before trading it in for another one. Now that we have discussed each of these 13 values separately, let us look at them in list form, 
then consider them paired with the counterpart values from a more traditional country. Personal control over the fate versus personal control over the environment versus fate, change versus tradition, time and its control versus human interaction, equality versus hierarchy, rank, status, individualism, privacy versus groups, welfare, self-help versus birthright inheritance, Competition versus cooperation. Future orientation versus past orientation. Action work orientation versus being orientation. Informality versus formality. Directness, openness, honesty versus indirectness, ritual, face. Practicality, efficiency, versus idealism. Materialism, acquisitiveness, versus spiritualism, detachment. The angry economy will kill us all. The economy often appears to be a dark mistress one is either intimate with or is doomed to never understand. So let's banish the fog and get the basics out of the way. An economy is the state of a country or region in terms of production and consumption of goods and services and the supply of money. Simple enough, right? Yet, despite this apparent simplicity, it will come as no surprise that it's tough out there for many people depending on free market economies to survive. It should be noted that it's potentially a lot harder for those under other systems, by this is neither, but this is neither here nor there. We in the West are slowly realizing that we live in a post-economic world, nominally rich but plagued by things like medical bankruptcies and income inequalities, something that hadn't necessarily been theorized by the scholars of yesteryear. One of the many reasons for this is that our economy isn't as socially productive as it's traditionally been, in part because we never learned how to nurture a middle class that can thrive in a highly automated and digital society within which free data is king, which leads us to the digital economy. I'd argue that the digital economy wherein the bigger computing power and the best software brings in the bigger bucks is partly to blame for current inequalities. Large companies now live and strive on data analyzed by AIs. They're fed data, your data, my data, free data. Data which leads to higher revenues with less workers. All quantifiable facts are constantly blended for sale, with the aggregate of every single interaction becoming a mechanism for ever more finely tuning the business of attracting and retaining users. Most of the current top-tier tech companies have gotten to where they are because people aren't paid for the information that is used 
to dole out regular dividends. And because information is held to be free, one of, 21, one of the 21st century's biggest lie, more and more people will, be, will give more and more data for free, which will be used to put more vulnerable workers out of jobs they might not be able to afford to lose. The digital economy is steadily digesting the physical economy and the jobs it provides, leading a gap between those that give the information and those who wield it. Data is not like steel. It does not need to be produced. It simply is. Hence, we've moved from issues of production to issues of fair distributions. How can we address this? For a start, we keep track of where information comes from. Pay people when information exists because of their existence turns out to be valuable. Every Facebook user is worth $20 per year to the company. Do you feel you're getting $20 worth of product from the fake news machine? We've moved from an era of scarcity to an era of abundance, and the rise of inequality isn't only caused by people not being needed. More, pre more precisely, it's because of an illusion that they aren't even there. Which leads us to the ghost economy. When I rave about inequalities, who do I talk about? I speak, of, I speak of the invisible workforce. People who clean offices, sort recycling, fulfill online orders. People you rarely see and even more rarely think about. Usually a ragtag crew of screw-ups, felons, floozies, single moms, the differently abled, students, immigrants, the homeless and hungry, the overqualified. Fun fact, McDonald's rejected me three times and underqualified. Fun fact, McKinsey rejected me three times. All of them ghosted by the traditional marketplace. For them, Smith's invisible hand takes on a whole new meaning. When you are so poor that you have to withstand the shame of a horrid uniform, the shame of handing out flyers in the street, the shame of welcoming suits to a conference all day, you become invisible. But in the boardrooms, far removed from this suffering and indignity, things are better than ever. Shareholders, CEOs, and venture capitalists are enjoying record profits. And so began the gig economy. Many jobs have become gigs, and the gigs are unsteady. Part-time, no health benefits, no pension, no unemployment insurance, no maternity leave, no way to plan a life, sign a lease, pay off debt, no stability, no other options. The model goes by many names, the gig economy, the on-demand, peer, or platform economy, but the companies partaking it, in it share certain premises. They typically have ratings-based platforms, in-app payment systems, and give workers the chance to earn money on their own schedules rather than through the corporate ladder. This means that the distance between the main employer and the worker who fulfills these gigs 
widens, allowing for the same type of casual cruelty that is exchanged between people who meet on Tinder. What often unites the gig economy's stakeholders is a belief in meritocracy, the free market, and the potential for social mobility, the presumption that they're playing a fair game. Yet, it's never been easier to be a billionaire and never been harder to be a millionaire. In this game, there are winners and losers and no in-betweens. That's the genius of companies like Uber. It took the traditional corporation with its C-suite responsible for controlling workers and machines and cut it in two, creating a management structure that needs not deal with the political demands of workers while heralding the virtues of autonomy, flexibility, and the go-getter spirit. And thus was born the sharing economy. Uber and Airbnb's business is characterized not by sharing, but by showcasing spare capacity for rent, with the platform taking a cut. Managers hang on to the sharing story because it props up the claim that market mechanisms could re-engineer the very community ties that the markets themselves have eroded. This not only separates managers from the grunts, it also shifts the costs of working to the self-employed, as well as the risks this entails. This is a venture capitalist's wet dream. Give a startup minimal capital to hire developers and run media campaigns, and then watch as network effects ripple over the infrastructure of the internet. Ta-da, you're suddenly in control of a corporation built with cheap digital tools extracting value from expensive real-world physical assets like cars and buildings. The entity holds itself together, not via employment contracts, but rather by self-employed workers' dependence on it to access the market they rely on for their survival. But, I hear you say, surely every efficiency has a winner and a loser, and society is benefiting in the long term. A service like Uber benefits the customer who's saving on the taxi fare, otherwise paid, but makes drivers' earnings less stable. Airbnb has made travel more affordable for people who can't or simply don't often often simply don't want to afford a hotel, yet it also means a significant revenue stream doesn't make its way directly to the hotel employees such as housekeepers, receptionists, and cooks, but instead goes to people who can afford a second home to rent to people who can afford to travel. The sharing model has helped divert traditional service worker earnings into the top 10% ever-expanding pockets, drawing wealth slowly upward. And so we arrive to the logical conclusion of the post-work economy. Even when work quality is potentially miserable, we still associate it with the idea of self-reliance and self-realization. But what if it wasn't so? To answer this question, many are calling for a universal basic income, a plan to give every citizen a modest flat annuity from the government as a replacement for all current welfare and unemployment programs. This would safeguard people 
for whom work doesn't lead to increased financial security and would arguably allow everyone to benefit from automation, not just the lucky few. Put down the pitchforks. Before dismissing this idea too quickly, it's important to consider the idea not in the context of our current economy, but of what the economy could become in a future dominated by robots and AIs. <clears throat> a government implementing a basic income philosophy would acknowledge that there are too few work hours to be worked by all available workers and respond by injecting liquidity into the mechanism that allocates them. Workers would need to be able to exchange hours of work at full pay for hours of free time paid for by the state. This, in essence, is how Deliveroo and Uber work. Sex, money, tech, and power. The naked truth about OnlyFans. Sex, money, tech, and power. One way or another, all major world events have been tied to one of these four concepts, OnlyFans, a social media platform created to share explicit content against tips, finds a way to merge all four. In doing so, it also manages to elegantly reflect the state of technology in 2021. Censorship, the dispersion of creativity, COVID's impact on the economy, sexism, what equally affects a young woman in Paris and an American art director in Ukraine will in inevitably affect us all. The Uberization of sex is here. Like many other young women throughout the world, Paris native Helen, aka Anmarche Noir, started her OnlyFans account in March 2020. She signed onto the platform after modeling on a variety of platforms because the community within which she evolved had relentlessly asked her to sign up. Honestly, I started off a bit haphazardly and it worked out very well financially for me, she specifies. It's become my main source of income today, even though I never really try to maximize it. She is now in the top 1% of content creators on the platform. All her subscribers pay a monthly fee to access her content, which ensures she has a comfortable life in a famously expensive city. This process will sound familiar to many OnlyFans content creators. Most start off as Instagram or TikTok models, gathering a huge following by posting mildly racy lifestyle photos. Nothing too explicit, but enough to cater to both men and women on the platforms which sustain them. Then come the comments, <laughs> etc. From there, two options present themselves. Block and ignore this unwanted fan base, or ask them to put their wallet where their money, uh, where their mouth is. During the COVID pandemic, many women chose the latter. Thousands created OnlyFans accounts and let their followers know that for a nominal monthly fee, they would be able to chat together, 
receive exclusive, explicit, and personalized photos, videos, texts. Chris Hunt, a fashion industry veteran turned OnlyFans marketing advisor, confirms the permeability between various social platforms. For most models, it really is just money. It's a way for them to pay their bills without doing much different than what they were already doing on Instagram. Obviously, good marketing and clever pricing is encouraged to best influence demand. But truth be told, demand was never going to be an issue. Many men are tired of major adult websites' lack of authenticity and have been primed by the likes of Uber, Netflix, and Spotify to respond positively to the immediacy and personalization that OnlyFans offers. Pick a girl you like, send her money, get a nude. The Uberization of sex is here. Once the word came out that some young women were making up to 30000 a month on the platform, searches for what is OnlyFans and how does OnlyFans work skyrocketed. And as more content creators came in, more users followed, thanks to shrewd advertising on Reddit, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok. OnlyFans went from having 90,000 creators in 2019 to 1 million in December 2020, for a total of 85 million registered users at the start of 2021 against 50 million in August 2020. Most creators don't make a lot of money, but the platform is making a killing. OnlyFans has grown steadily since the pandemic hit. There are three obvious reasons as to why this happened. Many Many women lost their jobs in 2020 and looked to supplement their incomes. Celebrities legitimized the platform by joining, and dates became harder to come by as the majority of the world's population sheltered at home. Adult performers and models eager to make up for lost earnings have flocked to OnlyFans, while lonely men have found a way to add some excitement to an otherwise dull year of confinement. The platform's financial pitch is straightforward. If an Instagram model has 100,000 followers and converts 1% of them to OnlyFans subscribers, the money quickly adds up. Even if we only base ourselves on the $12 average subscriber's monthly payment. According to Hunt, this simplicity is a double-edged sword. It's easy to take selfies and and make videos, but actually getting users to the platform is difficult. If a girl doesn't already have that built-in audience developed on Instagram or TikTok, you really have to start from scratch. Therein lies the issue. What OnlyFans systematically fails to advertise is that payments very heavily favor top content creators. Research shows that the top 1% of accounts make 33% of the money. Since the platform is allegedly paying out more than 200 million a month to its top creators, 
er, to its creators. This means that the top 10,000 content creators make an average of 6,600 a month, while the remaining 99% have to make do with 133 a month. This imbalance is unlikely to change anytime soon. Now in its fourth year <clears throat> now in its fourth year of operations, OnlyFans generated more than two billion in sales last year, of which it keeps about twenty percent, for a total of four hundred million in revenues in twenty twenty. Make no mistake, nude or clothed, the rich getting richer is a staple of post two thousand sixteen tech. Just like everywhere else in tech, a conversation about the just remuneration of thousands of workers, turning a select few into millionaires is well worth having. And OnlyFans IPO, but at what cost? OnlyFans is just the latest company to bypass major players in their industry to connect users directly with creators. Substack, Patreon, Twitch, Cameo, Etsy, TikTok, all have made great strides over the past year by promising to reduce barriers between creators and their fans, dealing blow after blow to traditional gatekeepers. Both economically and socially, this dispersion of creativity is the most important trend in tech over the past five years. With its millions of users and comparably small cut, 20%, um, the appeal of OnlyFans is obvious, and many traditional actors are crowding the space to ensure they get a piece of the action. Musicians The Dream and Sway Lee have promoted new music on the platform. Drag queen Shea Coolie has filmed herself doing makeup before performances. Social media personality Yes Jules has used it to share fitness workouts. These new users are bypassing both traditional fundraising players like Patreon and personalized video newcomers such as Cameo. But many models are worried that a turn to respectability may leave hardworking women who built the platform from scratch with little to show for it. This has already happened on Tumblr, on Patreon. Sex workers are often the first to be left behind when a platform takes off. Helen has been cultivating a following on many different platforms, spe specifically to ensure she would not be left penniless should this happen. There's always this worry, and that's why I'm getting my content everywhere on all platforms. In theory, I like that the platform is democratized and open to a different type of content. It shows that you're not a pariah just because you have an OnlyFans account. But in fact, sex workers are always the first to suffer from new rules once a platform is popular enough. If OnlyFans manages to prosper thanks to non-sexual content, I'd be worried that the platform would close access to sexual content. She's right to be worried. OnlyFans probably has the ambition to IPO someday, and a platform without smut might be more palatable to Wall Street.
This theme of censorship is prevalent in today's discussions about tech. What should be censored and what shouldn't? What should we, what do we owe to stigmatized sex workers? Can platforms really be both judge and jury? Is the commodification of adult content a net positive or negative for society at large? Here too, fights over a small platform are reflected in the wider world. Can you take back something that was never truly yours? OnlyFans was birthed by the natural voyeuristic impulses of young men and by decades of hinting to young women that their body and what they did with it defined much of their worth. For years, sexist men and women have used the following phrase to shame women into control of their sexuality. If a key opens many locks, it's a great key. But if a lock is opened by many keys, it's a terrible lock. Having been told this since, since teenagerhood, many women have come to the conclusion that what gave them value was scarcity. And where there is scarcity, there is money to be made. Enter OnlyFans, a platform that exists for the sole purpose of banking on that scarcity. Full control over content pricing, time of publishing, virtually no middlemen. It would be easy to argue that the OnlyFans is creating a new paradigm for sex work, where women are in control. One wonders if it's even possible for women to reclaim their sexuality in a deeply entrenched patriarchal society, or if claiming to do so is just a lie women tell themselves so they can more comfortably cater to the male gaze. On the other hand, conversations like this, this one often infant infantilizes them painting them as incapable of engaging in these discussions themselves, which is itself a product of the deeply misogynistic society we live in. Helene is not a victim. She was not forced into the adult industry. In fact, she started her career in the adult industry while interning at Microsoft. I saw that working in a big company without being on my own was not a thing for me. With all these platforms, I'm lucky not to be just another employee. I never did this really for the money. It just allows me to do what I want when I want. It's my dream job. Hunt confirms that models on the platform enjoy the money, but that there can often be underlying reasons to join the platform. For other girls, it's a creative expression, he says. It's another way for them to create. There are fashion models who really like fashion, but they also like doing artistic things that may involve nudity. They're attracted to being able to show another side of themselves in a way that they can actually monetize. Nevertheless, it's difficult to argue that everyone is using the platform of their own volition. Headlines have flourished of late with stories of students having to get by through the sale of nudes, of workers fired for using the platform to complement their income. 
It's a lot easier to explain the platform's success as a correlation to the government's inability to help young women in need, rather than through any form of fem feminist movement. This is what no one tells you about being Asian in America in 2021, by Sharon Kwong. A couple of years ago, my friends and I called an Uber to take us to a Laker game. We were a motley crew, reflective of the diversity of Los Angeles, and I was the only Asian. The driver, who spoke with an accent that made me believe he was an immigrant like myself, asked us where we all were from. Around here, we replied in unison. Then he looked at me and smirked. Not you, he said, pointing to my eyes and making that slanty gesture. You can't be from here. Where are you really from? Although I was born in South Korea, I lived most of my life in the States from age three and onward. Since then, I've spent so much of my time here trying to convince everyone, including myself, that I am indeed American. It is an isolating and lonely existence, one that is specific to the Asian American experience. I sat still, frozen in discomfort and silence, as my friends giggled. I began to replay similar scenes from my childhood in my head, while sitting in a car with another person of color, othering and jeering me while my non-Asian friends stifled their laughter. I couldn't help but wonder, why does everyone else find me and my experience so funny? After many years of enduring a special kind of racial trauma, I learned the answer. This is what no one tells you about being Asian in America in 2021. Our world minimizes us, and we minimize ourselves. Since the start of COVID, there has been a 1,900% rise of hate crimes against Asian Americans, more specifically against elderly Asian Americans, which has struck a painful chord within many of us who are raised to respect and protect our elders. But what has been even more painful was the lack of attention this received in the mainstream media. I found out about Vicha Ratana Padki an 84-year-old Thai man who was forcibly shoved onto the ground and killed while walking on the street in San Francisco, a 64-year-old grandmother who was assaulted and robbed in San Jose, and a 61-year-old Filipino man who was slashed on his face with a box cutter and left bleeding inside a subway train in New York, all on social media. An attack against an elderly Asian American is an attack against the most vulnerable of an already marginalized population. But no one else seems to care except us. This lack of acknowledgement is nothing new for Asian Americans. We are used to being ignored. We are used to minimizing our own pain because we don't want to rock the boat. What other people see is that we are submissive, quiet, and reserved. What we actually feel is that we are not as important, therefore we should just follow others' opinions and desires. Although there is a world of diversity among Asians, these cultural ideals have forged a shared minority experience. 
Asians are extremely collective with strong family values and a sense of putting others first. This is clearly evident in how Asian countries have handled the spread of COVID. We wear masks not for ourselves, but to protect those around us. We come from countries where we are born with a sense of duty to our families. and regard our neighbors as one of our own. As children, we were taught not to talk back, to be respectful, to be mindful of others. As adults, we continue to be silent and fear taking up space when discussing racism in America because we don't want to diminish other minority groups' experiences. Our repeated racial trauma and childhood conditioning prevent us from speaking up and making our voices heard. Stephen Yuen, star of Minari, a film that was written, directed, produced by, and starring Americans, and set in America, but was only nominated for Best Foreign Language Film at the Golden Globes, recently said this in an interview with the New York Times. Sometimes I wonder if the Asian American experience is what it's like when you're thinking about everyone else, but no one else is thinking about you. This hit home. I felt guilty writing this during Black History Month and in a time when all eyes should be on the injustices of anti-blackness in America. I'm fully aware that the oppression against Asians is nothing compared to what black Americans have experienced and still experience to this day. It makes me want to sit back and hold my tongue as I've become so accustomed to doing. It is the same conditioned minimization that sets off the narrative in my mind of your experience isn't valid because you didn't have it as bad. But comparing who had it worse and what aboutism doesn't further anti-racism. Instead, it pits us against one another, just as the model minority myth was designed to do. As a psychotherapist who works with Asian and immigrant populations in both public and private settings, The most prevailing emotions I help clients process are guilt and shame. I believe these feelings derive from our collective roots that often teeter on codependency. For many, our life's mission is to make our parents proud. We can't help but seek others' approval, and we care deeply about what others think of us. It is this cultural norm that has made us susceptible and vulnerable to the model minority myth, which argues that if we behave and work hard enough, we will finally be seen as equals, as white. In addition, this myth perpetuates that racism, including more than two centuries of black enslavement, can be overcome by hard work and strong family values. It's why I, a non-black person of color, have a hard time discussing racism against Asians in America. To this day, I feel self-conscious calling myself a person of color due to my proximity to whiteness. However, this proximity doesn't make me white either, as I am regularly reminded of this when people of all colors, white, black, and everything in between, tell me that I don't belong here. Since we don't talk about it and call it out, racism against Asians has become normalized. It took me years of therapy, grad school, and understanding my trauma responses for me to recognize what got me so frozen in those moments of confrontation and that if I wanted 
things to change, I had to speak up. In the words of one of my professors in my Master of Social Work program, if you're not confronting, you're enabling. What's even worse is when we do finally muster the courage to speak up, sometimes we are met with dismissing comments like, well, that's not racism, or what's so bad about that? This reinforces the feelings of being dismissed and feeling unimportant, things we may have internalized as non-black people of color and children of immigrants whose experiences pale in comparison to our immigrant parents' traumatic past. BIPOC, black, indigenous, and people of color experience complex racial trauma on a daily basis. Complex trauma refers to any kind of trauma, physical, psychological, emotional, societal, etc., that occurs repeatedly and cumulatively. Those who experience complex trauma have a tendency to feel unheard, unseen, and unable to make change. What is unique about complex racial trauma is that it occurs on both societal and individual levels. The world that we exist in tells us that we don't matter. Our family's words at home also reflect this sentiment, and we begin to internalize these negative core beliefs. These negative core beliefs then manifest in our daily lives in myriad ways. We come to believe that we don't matter and behave in ways that reflect this belief. At home, work, school, in our relationships, becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy. What other people see is that we are submissive, quiet, and reserved. What we actually feel is that we are not as important Therefore, we should just follow others' opinions and desires. Why speak up when no one else cares anyway? As we continue to practice anti-racism and work toward more diversity and inclusion, individually and collectively, I hope that we can do just that and involve all groups in the discussion. We can't call ourselves anti-racists until we acknowledge all marginalized people, including Asian Americans. The last ethnic group in America that can be publicly scorned, stereotyped, by Henry Allen, 1988. Once in a while, some white knight arises in America to save the wasps from their despair, but he gets hammered on till even his friends laugh at him. One thinks of Elliot Richardson running for the Senate, Endicott Chubb Peabody losing elections in both Massachusetts and New Hampshire, or John Lindsay as mayor of New York. There was a day when the wasps ruled, and everyone else was the exception that proved their entitlement. But for the past century, they have been slinking back into a kind of seedy twilight, like another American archetype, the Indians, until they exist largely as a collection of legends. The Great Gatsby, the old boy founders of the CIA, Skull and Bones, the Lodges speaking only to the Cabots, 
along with the best-selling exploitations, such as the official preppy handbook, and pathetic souvenir stands, such as Ralph Lauren's polo stores. You knew this. Why bring it up again? Who cares except modeling prep school boys who didn't get into Yale? George Bush cares. George Bush is a wasp. He is a member of the last ethnic group in America that can be publicly scorned, stereotyped, mythologized, and envied. None of which might make the slightest difference to him if he weren't running for president. But here he is in a tight race with a Boston Greek who brags about his roots on Ellis Island, the way wasps used to brag about their footprints on Plymouth Rock until it wasn't smart to bring that kind of thing up in public anymore. Unless you were George Plimpton going on television and selling, using your Locust Valley lockjaw accent to sell popcorn. Wasps are fair game, the fall guy. They have been exempted from the prudery we exercise around minorities. We don't even think about wasps as a minority, although they constitute less than a quarter of the population, and in the 1980 census had median incomes below those of households whose heads were Japanese, Filipino, Asian Indian, Asian Pacific Islander, Chinese, Italian, Polish, Korean, German, Irish, and Aleut. No one worries about offending wasp ethnic sensitivities any more than they worry about offending gypsies or the Welsh when they say someone gypped them or Welshed on a bet. In an era when the cliches of hot-blooded Italians, cruel Germans, or carefree blacks are approached gingerly, if at all, the cliches of the wasp live on. The McNeil Lehrer News Hour Upper-class white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, or WASPs, and that's what George Herbert Walker Bush, a graduate of Andover and Yale, most emphatically is. So what happens? Vice President Bush is lampooned as the ultimate Ivy League preppy, whose favorite drink is probably Perrier Light, and whose idea of soul food is quiche. The most amazing rubbish gets published about WASPs. Last year, in a book called The Wasp Mystique, Dr. Richard Robertiello and Diana Hougue wrote Fantasies of spankings, shame, and public humiliation seem particularly common to wasps, and the wasp holds those individuals who are the recipients of his largesse in silent contempt. On and on, smoldering in a sort of dump fire of the American soul, fueled by historic grudges of Catholics against Protestants, Western farmers against Eastern moneymen, one side of the tracks against the other, immigrants against Brahmins, Valley against the Hill, Southerners against Yankees. A letter to the Christian Science Monitor. Of all the names mentioned, not one was non-male, non-white, or non-wasp. Perhaps Vice Pres- President Bush has spent so many years in a cocoon that he doesn't realize there is a world of people out there in various shapes, sizes, and colors. St. Louis Post-Dispatch Remarked Cam Kawata, 
a consultant in California of Japanese American descent. With Bush, it's not just whether you're a wasp, but whether you came over on the Mayflower. Bush speechwriter Peggy Noonan. We all play our ethnic group and wear our affiliation, but how do you wear a true blue wasp in the new America? With a kind of wry awkwardness, it seems. Why? Envy is a complicated business. The hatred of something you want, the resentment of something you admire. And not only have non wasp Americans envied wasps, but the wasps have pulled off the neat trick of seeming to envy themselves, feeding as they do on the New England boiled dinner of both self loathing and smugness. In a short story called Winter Dreams, F. Scott Fitzgerald wrote, He knew the sort of men they were, the men who, when he first went to college, had entered from the great prep schools with graceful clothes and the deep tan of healthy summers. He had seen that, in one sense, he was better than these men. He was newer and stronger. Yet, in acknowledging to himself that he wished his children to be like them, he was admitting that he was but the rough, strong stuff from which they eternally sprang. Very complicated. To start with, the word wasp makes no sense. It is redundant. Most Anglo-Saxons are Protestant and all are white, but logic has been overridden by the piquancy of a hint at petulant insect violence. It also appeals to the same sort of sloth that has us categorize people by their handwriting or astrological sign. And it provides a cop-out for Americans who'd rather blame our troubles on ethnicity than on class. Talking about class smacks of Marxism, for one thing, and it goes against the strange but popular belief that America is a classless society. Hence the usefulness of an acronym such as WASP, which uses ethnic and religious terms to describe what most people think of as a segment of the upper classes. Lower-class white Anglo-Saxon Protestants aren't called wasps. They're called hillbillies, crackers, swamp Yankees, white trash, or the popular redneck, as Randall Robinson, leader of American anti-apartheid protests, referred to presidential candidate Pat Robertson earlier this year. It didn't even come into common circulation until the 1960s, when a sociologist named E. Digby Balsell at the University of Pennsylvania picked it up in his book, The Protestant Establishment. However, if we define wasps as a ruling establishment, a majority or a rich minority, they don't have much to do with the real white Anglo-Saxon Protestants in America. According to 1988 data gathered by Chicago's NORC, National Opinion Research Center, 13.7% of Americans say they are of English and Scottish origin. For comparison, about 12% of Americans are black. Statistically, in other words, pure wasps are a minority. Even when you count people both wholly and partly of English ancestry, they total about 50 million about the same as people who define themselves as wholly or partly German.
The wasps are not a very rich minority either. Granted, 9.9% of households of English or Scottish ancestry have incomes over $60,000 a year, compared with 8.1% of all American households. But median household incomes in the 1980 census place wasps at $16,746, behind 11 other groups, six of them usually considered to be minorities. One reason is that a lot more white Anglo Saxon Protestants live in trailers in Appalachia than in neighborhoods like the one where George Bush grew up in Greenwich, Connecticut, but no one thinks of them as wasps. The states with the highest percentages of these people are West Virginia and Kentucky, as it happens. These statistics are hazy. About 20% of Americans either can't or won't respond to requests for their ancestry. But they make it hard to equate white Anglo Saxon Protestants with a focus for national envy and the image that the word wasp brings to mind. This is not to say that wasps don't exist or that they haven't wielded power culturally, politically, and financially, but to say that it's hard to find one who meets all the specs. The wasp is a stereotype, a bit of American mythology, like the cowboy, the Indian, the yeoman farmer, or the scrub woman who puts all of her children through medical school. So let's look at the myth. The word summons up good breeding, horses, roses, people, and things that are right. People addresses forks. A people graceful under fire and awkward on the dance floor. A world of alcoholic crypto Brits with their monograms and little yachting flags on the sides of their station wagons. Ivy Leaguers ashamed of any mark higher than a B minus. Puritans venting their ids on fox hunting. Thin lipped debutantes with last names for first names Whitney, Page, Kendall. And God as a sort of Julia Child without the sense of humor. A world of scholars of crossword puzzles and genealogies, of a careless, even shabby, your Yankee elite beating the rest of us over our heads with their modesty, prudence, thrift, and sense of entitlement. In Love Story, a 1970 movie that depends utterly on a belief in the wasp stereotype, Elliot McGraw, playing Jenny Cavalieri, Tells Ryan O'Neill, playing Oliver Barrett IV, that she can tell he went to prep school because he looks stupid and rich. Then she echoes the yearning and resentment of millions of Americans when she says, Why is it I suddenly wish my name were Abigail Adams or Wendy Wasp? And I love not just you, but your name and your numeral. They're part of what you are. In the 1973 movie The Way We Were, blonde, blue eyed campus hero Hubel Gardner writes a short story called The All American Smile. It begins In a way, he was like the country he lived in. Everything came too easily to him. The last line There was no reason to change because they were too lost and too lazy. It had always been too easy. In the course of the movie, which chronicles the troubled ro romance of Wasp Hubble, played by Robert Redford and Jewish Katie Morosky, 
played by Barbara Streisand, Hubble will go on to write a novel called A Country Made of Ice Cream. He takes Katie to a party, saying ironically and with classic wasp self-consciousness, we can all be decadent, eat eggs benedict, and vote Republican. Now, wasps are big. Spy Magazine says there is a craze and calls it wasp mania. Sydney Biddlebarrows, the Mayflower Madam, told the women in her brothel to dress as if their grandfathers were taking them to lunch at 21. The wasp as sexual fetish. The official preppy handbook by Lisa Bernbach is a guide to tribal ritual and trappings. Things to monogram, things not to monogram, 20 slang terms for drunkenness, how to acquire the right accent and throw a tailgate picnic, and where to buy a camel's hair coat. Designer Ralph Lauren, a Jew from the Bronx, has created a temple to the myth of wasp country life in the old Rhinelander mansion at 72nd and Madison in Manhattan. He has decorated it with worn oriental rugs, wooden shafted golf clubs, brass telescopes, tattered leather suitcases, a worn-out teddy bear on a wicker bed, photographs of college rowers, old boxing gloves, a tartan Bible for $500, a battered 1920 pith helmet, oh, lost empire, for 135 all of it with the air of something lost, even defeated, a poignant blend of arrogance and desolation, a sense of the sort of contradiction that Fitzgerald epitomized in The Great Gatsby with the effete brute Tom Buchanan, who has a harsh, defiant wistfulness, and not even the effeminate swank of his writing clothes could hide the enormous power of his body. It was a body capable of enormous leverage, a cruel body. The myth of the wasp is full of this kind of ambivalence, this love-hate routine. Witness the image of Bush as both war hero and wimp, as red-blooded patriot and anemic scion of a caste barricaded in exclusive suburbs, as aristocrat with nothing to prove and soulless toady compelled to prove himself endlessly, as a man who reminds every woman of her first husband and a man every mother wants her daughter to marry. No wonder voters have had a hard time getting a fix on just who George Bush is. No wonder Gary Trudeau, a graduate of St. Paul's School in Yale, and our leading router out of wasp rot, portrays Bush and Doonesbury as being invisible and paired with an evil twin. No wonder, too, that Trudeau is flailing away at his fellow old boys. This has been the wasp tradition for a century now, a tradition of opportunistic self-laceration, a glorying in decline. Wasps have wallowed in their belief that they're dying out in a sort of twilight of the gods, a notion encouraged by the writings of Boston patricians who saw their ardently defended bloodlines falling back under waves of immigration in the late 19th century. Henry Cabot Lodge argued that immigration would cause 
a great and perilous change in the very fabric of our race. Francis A. Walker, president of MIT, despaired that control of America was being taken away from those who were descended from the tribes that met under the oak trees of old Germany to make laws and choose chieftains. In 1903, John Dos Passos, father of the novelist, could still say, the 20th century is par excellence, the Anglo-Saxon century. It is now manifest that to this great race is entrusted the civilization and Christianization of the world. But when the immigrants took control of the cities, rich wasps tended to respond by either hiding on Fifth Avenue or fleeing to suburbs such as Far Hills, New Jersey, or the North Shore of Long Island. They adopted wholesale an image of English country life that led them to be pretend farmers on country estates. In the movie Wall Street, greed freak Gordon Gecko, played by Michael Douglas, says, that's what you've got to remember about wasps. They love animals, but hate people. They changed in the formulation of Baltzell from being an aristocracy with a mission of ruling well to being a caste seeking only to protect its own prerogatives while it mourned its former glory. Robert Bacon, a Harvard athlete and then a partner of J.P. Morgan, went off to World War I saying, the world, our world, is not lucky enough to be snuffed out as was Pompeii. We've got to go through a long, sickening decadence. In the 1920s, a book called The Passing of the Great Race by Madison Grant had a vogue big enough to have been the model for the following passage in Gatsby. Civilization's going to pieces, broke out Tom violently. I've gotten to be a terrible pessimist about things. Have you read The Rise of the Colored Empires by this man Goddard? It's up to us, who are the dominant race, to watch out, or these other races will have control of things. The idea is, we're Nordics, and we've produced all the things that go to make civilization. Oh, science and art and all that. Do you see? Paintings of three generations of Wyeths trace a decline from the romance of Anglo-Saxon vigor in N.C.'s illustrations to the stoic nostalgia of Andrew to the effete cuteness of Jamie. J.P. Marcond, John O'Hara, John Cheever, and Louis Auchincloss turned Wasprot into a genre unto itself, and the wistfulness was all. So by the late 60s, Norman Mailer was working in an honored wasp tradition when he wrote in Nixon in Miami that wasps were the most powerful force in America, and yet they were a psychic island. If they did not find a bridge, they could only grow more insane each year, like a rich nobleman in an empty castle chasing elves and ogres with his stick. In 1971, Michael Novak now a neoconservative at the American Enterprise Institute, wrote in The Rise of the Unmeltable, Unmeltable Ethnics that wasps were so out of touch with reality of their power that the solution was 
to wit, let every wasp lady by law in yearly ritual, in full public gaze, strangle an abandoned cat with no other assistance but her bare hands. Let every wasp male wring the neck of a chicken until its head pulls bloodily free, or in some other way, sticky with felt violence. Get the feeling of changing history and mastering the environment. Loony as this sort of thing sounds, it echoes decades of wasp complaining about a lack of authenticity, a lack they sought to fill with ordeals and guests, such as Teddy Roosevelt testing his manhood as a cowboy in the Dakotas and as a rough writer in Cuba. Rich young men were keen indeed on World War I, forming the Lafayette Escadrille and fighting and dying in large numbers. At St. Paul's School in Concord, New Hampshire, a monument to those who died in that war shows an angel of death of such voluptuosity that one senses the school and its upper-class supporters were grateful for the slaughter, that the war had redeemed them in their own eyes. It's this sort of ordeal that supporters of George Bush bring up when they want to defend him against charges, that he is inauthentic, a wimp. They point out that he was a flyer and a hero in World War II, and that he then headed west after Yale to duke it out with Texas oilmen. The attackers see no contradiction between Bush as war hero and Bush as wimp. Perhaps this is because the combination of the two is an old wasp stereotype. One St. Paul's wasp who died a heroic flyer in World War I was Hobie Baker. According to one account, Baker was such a gentleman when he played hockey at Princeton that he refused to believe that anyone would foul him. On the rare occasion when he was forced to admit he had been deliberately fouled, he was driven to tears. Tears. Another example of the hero wimp. In a turn-of-the-century short story by Frank Norris, two men are in love with the same girl. One is Jack Brunt, a tower of leathery muscles, a man whom other men, children, and some women like. And the other is Wesley Shotover, blonde and blue-eyed, with almost the face of a girl, smooth, guiltless of beard and the character of a frivolous type who smokes cigarettes, eats chocolates, and drinks vermouth. But Brunt has had, has bad heredity, including an immigrant grandfather, while Shotover's ancestors moved among the founding fathers. When a gang of opium-crazed Chinese attacks the porch where both men sit with the girl they love, the muscular Brunt retreats inside the house while the well-bred shotover drives them off with a whip. Blood tells. Class tells. What non-wasp could have read that story without forming a lifelong loathing of the image Norris was trying to glorify? We love them, we hate them. Newsweek. Prescott and his wife, Dorothy Walker Bush, sought to breed in their children the old-fashioned wasp virtues of integrity, fairness, and sportsmanship. 
People magazine. He's the scion of an old moneyed line of East Coast wasps. Forbes magazine. Maybe brains and backbone will overcome the presumed political disadvantage these days of waspness. The Boston Globe. The wasp background. Yale. The skull and crossbones at Yale. Son of a Connecticut senator. The Maine coast and squash and tennis. He's very sensitive to the harpoon of Gary Trudeau's Doonesbury and said he was into horseshoes and the Oak Ridge Boys for music, which is supposed to smack the good old boy. The myth lives on. All the world's a stage and all the men and women merely players. They have their exits and their entrances and one man in his time plays many parts, his acts being seven ages. At first the infant, mewing and puking in the nurse's arms, then the whining schoolboy with his satchel, and shining morning face creeping like snail unwillingly to school, and then the lover sighing like furnace with a woeful ballad made to his mistress's eyebrow, then a soldier full of strange oaths and bearded like the pard, jealous in honor, sudden and quick in quarrel, seeking the bubble reputation even in the cannon's mouth. And then the justice, in fair round belly, with good capon lined, with eyes severe and beard of formal cut, full of wise saws and modern instances, and so he plays his part. The sixth age shifts into the lean and slippered pantaloon, with spectacles on nose and pouch on side, his youthful hose well saved, a world too wide for his shrunk shank, and his big manly voice, turning again toward childish trouble, pipes and whistles in his sound. Last scene of all, that ends the strange eventful history, is second childishness and mere oblivion. Sand teeth, sand eyes, sand taste, sand everything.